It has been a really great day to have people back in our worship in each of our three services for the first time since March of last year. And thanks be to God for his provision in enabling us to get to this point. I also want to say a special thank you to our doctors and healthcare workers and scientists who have been hard at work getting us to this point. Yes. Um, we are incredibly grateful for all of you and the labor that you've put in. And we're also above all grateful to God for the progress that has taken place often through your work, through your hands and your minds, enabling us to get to this point. Uh, today is just the first step in a multi-month process that will um, take some time for us as a church community to return to life as we once knew it. In fact, I don't think it will return to what was before because I'm confident that the pandemic has changed us, not only corporately, but also personally and individually. And it's probably too early to tell just how much we've been changed. I think it's going to take some time for us to sort that out, uh, even in our own lives, in our own hearts, because of all that we've just walked through. So I want to encourage us again to be gracious with one another uh, and to exercise patience with one another as we walk through the next few months of learning how to live again with life without as many restrictions as we've been under uh, for the past over a year. So I am excited to be with you tonight. I'm also excited to be turning to the Psalms. We are going to begin a series over the, that will take us through the course of the summer on the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. And I will say that I love the Psalms, and without hesitation, this section of Scripture, the Psalms, has probably shaped me more than any other section, at least as much as any other section of Scripture in my life. The Psalms are honest, they are raw, they are human. They teach us how to pray. In fact, when Jesus was praying, especially on the cross, he quoted from the Psalms. So he turned to these words to give himself language in his agony. And they do give us language, and they give us poetic language through which we can express the whole range of human experience, including fear and pain and sorrow and suffering to God. I think far too often, especially for those of us who might identify as evangelicals, it's easy for us to make our spiritual lives neat and tidy. But the world that we live in is not neat and tidy. And it's actually problematic when we try to make our spiritual lives reflect something that isn't really real. Life is full of twists and turns and ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And the Psalms give us a picture of that messiness of life. It's not a linear journey from base camp to the summit. It's much more like the wilderness wanderings of the people of God in the Old Testament when they knew the promised land was out there, they knew where they were going to get there eventually, but all they could do was follow the cloud by day and the fire by night and hope that they could know, you know, what was around the corner as God led them along. And that's a little bit like what we're facing. In fact, life often gives us things that we would prefer not to have. We might, you might remember at the end of the Gospel of John when Peter is told, when you get old, people will take you where you do not want to go. And often, I think a lot of our lives, we've been taken to places that we don't want to go. And this raises substantial challenges for us, whether it's a miscarriage or an illness or a misstep or the pandemic or confusion or insecurity or the, the wrestling with the reality of sins, of pride and anger and lust and greed. All of these chip away at the facade of life as in some ways neatly lived. And honestly, even among most of us, there may be some of you here whose life is pretty neat and ordered. Um, but even among those of us for whom life seems like it's making sense, we're just one step away. We all know this from things being completely turned upside down. As I've had the privilege of getting to know many of you over the last year and hear your stories, I've 
I've heard countless stories of that moment when life just turned, often in a way that we didn't want it to, and how that led us to then embrace something new and not really that clean and somewhat messy. So this is what we live in, and the Psalms are kind of like a walking stick for a good hike. They give us something to lean on, in this case, the inspired words of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that will help us to walk this journey faithfully, whatever twists and turns and slips and falls that it entails. We turn to the Psalms to comfort, to lament, to protest, to praise. We turn to the Psalms to teach us how to pray again and again. These are the cries of faith on the lips of the faithful, but they are not placid or happy clappy or tame. In fact, they're the opposite. They're gritty and feisty and graphic and raw, just like life when we're courageous enough to embrace it in this way. So I am glad to be going to the Psalms with you this summer. And uh, coming out of this long road of the pandemic, I actually think the Psalms will be very helpful, especially these Psalms of Ascent, which give us some of the basics of the life of discipleship for us to wrestle with and to lean on as we kind of stumble our way back to hopefully a much more normal uh, cadence and rhythm in the fall. So the first time I remember understanding the Psalms of Ascent as a distinct body within the Psalms was when I read Eugene Peterson's book that I'm sure some of you have read called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I read that many years ago and he takes a look at this unit of Psalms as a manual for discipleship in what he calls an instant society. Each of these Psalms has the superscription Song of Ascents and we can't be certain but this distinct body of Psalms was most likely used by pilgrims who would go up to Jerusalem for the annual festivals. There were three annual festivals in Jerusalem that many of the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem for, and it's likely that this is the song, this is the songbook that they would grab for the journey. Certainly we can appreciate the idea of getting a good book for a long trip or creating a nice playlist for, for a road trip. And in many ways, that's what these Psalms are for the ancient Jewish people as they would travel to Jerusalem. They'd pick up this book again and they'd play it over and over again. I remember growing up, our, our family would jump into our full-size Ford van and drive the, the trek up, the many hours up to Wisconsin to a Christian family camp to spend the week, you know, having all kinds of fun. And we'd play the album Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Not sure if anybody knows that one. I could sing it for you, but I won't, or some of those songs. But it just kind of got written onto our hearts as a family. And in many ways, that's what these songs are to do for the people of God long ago. And again, they deal with the basic themes of life and discipleship, a lot of different, a lot of different angles that we'll see in the coming weeks. And it's so uh, pertinent that they would use these songs as they're marching up to Jerusalem. The word ascent in that superscription, the root meaning of that word is to go up. And from wherever in ancient Israel that you would have been starting your pilgrimage, you would have been traveling up in elevation to Jerusalem, signifying our ascent up to God as well. That is the path that you and I are on as pilgrims, as Christian pilgrims, as we're traveling to God on the way of Jesus Christ. So this songbook continues to be pertinent and helpful for us as we seek to do that pilgrimage well. So we'll start tonight with Psalm 120 and look at it in three. We'll do, do three sections here. First, um, dwelling. Second, distress. And third, dependence. So dwelling, distress, and dependence as we look at the song. Dwelling, the context. Where is this pilgrimage taking place? From where does it begin? And 
The psalmist complains that he's living among the world and he bemoans these circumstances. So verse five, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Meshach was mentioned in Ezekiel 38, and it's the region north of Jerusalem and east a bit between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, what is modern day Turkey, Iran, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And that would have been where Meshach was. And then Kedar, which is mentioned also in Isaiah 21, is a region of nomadic peoples on the Arabian Peninsula, southeast of Jerusalem. These were miles and miles apart. There was no way you could be in either of these regions at the same time. And so it's quite likely that the psalmist mentions these regions in a sense metaphorically, identifying through these names any land or community, whether near or far, that is not living according to the ways of the Lord. And there are two dimensions of this context of the pilgrimage that the psalmist points out for us. The first is that this is a place of violence. So verses six and seven. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Notice how these neighbors are described. They hate peace and they are for war. This is the bloodthirsty, cutthroat survival of the fittest world. And it's not only in ancient Meshech or Kedar, but it's in Newton and Jamaica Plain and Back Bay and East Boston and Cambridge. The fact of the matter is, is we don't identify our neighbors necessarily with hating peace or being against or being for war, but we all know that anger and violence are lurking just below the surface in many, and if not most of our lives. The pandemic has frayed our nerves as well. I was driving Claire to school earlier this week and I made a lane change that probably wasn't the smartest, honestly. I kind of moved over and the car that was in that lane was coming a bit faster than I thought. And I got a long, big horn blast. Uh, and then we got to a stoplight and the person, this man drove up next to us and I knew he was saying things to me and I just chose to look back at Claire and not to engage. I thought that was the wisest thing to do. And I honestly was regretting my decision to change lanes. But instead of getting angry back, I, I decided to think about, you know, I wonder what this man is going through today. I wonder what his morning has been like, or perhaps what the pandemic has been like for him that led to what I thought was at least a pretty, pretty significant overreaction. The reality is, is that this anger, we all deal with anger in different ways, and it spills out in different ways, but it does damage, and it leads to violence in the world. And when that violence is fully flowered, we call it war. And we see a lot of that even in our world today. And the psalmist is saying, my dwelling place is defined by violence. This is a part of what marks it. The second feature of the dwelling, of the context of the pilgrimage, is that it's marked by deceit and by lies. So if you think back to verse 2, the psalmist speaks of lying lips and a deceitful tongue. In verse 3, he mentions, you deceitful tongue. Of course, lies are usually told to legitimize violence as well or our quest for power. And the lies themselves in verse four are described as sharp arrows or the coals of a broom tree, which pierce and burn. They do damage, they destroy life. Truthfully, we live in a world of lies. Some of them are egregious, such as the lies that are told to support genocide or racism or unjust war. Others are more subtle in their damage, but they destroy life and relationships and communities all the same. As we sought to raise our own children in a culture where we value honesty and we've taught them about being honest 
as everybody struggles with telling the truth at some point in our lives, we've, we've told them that, look, we want to have a healthy relationship with you kids, and we can't have that if we aren't living in the truth together. Because lies, they create a false reality. And love and relationships can only flower and blossom in the context of the truth. And a lie takes us out of the truth and doesn't allow us to grow a healthy relationship. I think of Jesus' words about Satan as the father of lies in John chapter 8. It seems that in this case, in this psalm, for the psalmist, the lies are personal. That is, the psalmist is under the direct attack of people who are being deceitful and telling lies about him, that they might do him harm. And if any of you have been in that kind of situation in your lives where there have been lies that are directed to you, you know just how painful that can be. But there's also a sense in which Lies are just everywhere around us, whether they're directed at us personally or not. Here are a few. Money brings happiness. Getting a degree or this particular degree or job will make you wiser and more valuable. Romantic love is the solution to all your problems. Or being independent is the goal of life. These lies, which are variations, all of them, of the one great lie, which is that you can have life outside of God. And that is the fundamental lie. All of them are embedded in the stories that are told to us every day. There's millions of dollars spent to tell these stories really well and convincingly in advertisements and other ways. I remember hearing Os Guinness say many, many years ago that he used to play a game with his kids when they were younger called Spot the Lie. And that was if they could spot the lie in a billboard or a radio advertisement or a TV advertisement and tell them what the lie was, he would give them a quarter. And uh, we played that game some with our kids as they've been growing up. But I would say it's not just a game for kids. It's actually a great game for adults. And the payoff is actually much better than just a quarter in your pocket. Can we spot the lies around us? The dwelling place is a place of lies and violence. We see that in academic departments and corporate boardrooms and high school locker rooms and neighborhood meetings. We see it everywhere. But the psalmist says, but I am for peace. Shalom. For this sense of flourishing and well-being that comes when we are rightly related to God and then rightly related to one another across every spectrum and level of society. I am for peace. And so if that's what we are for and we live in a context like this, then I think we need to say with Abraham, look, here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking a city that is to come. Or to say with Peter, we are aliens or exiles and sojourners as we seek to go on this pilgrimage. Because of this context in Meshach or Kedar, there is difficulty and distress in the psalmist. And this is our second point, moving from dwelling and context to now distress and the effect. There is difficulty. And we see this distress in the words of the psalmist in verse 5. Woe to me! Or in verse 6, too long! Or the cry for help in verse 2 as well is a sign of this distress. And we remember all too well Jesus' words to his disciples in the upper room. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. And next week, we'll, we'll see the promise of God's protection amid the trouble. But here, in Psalm 120, we see the distress that's caused by dwelling in a sinful and broken world. And here's the point I want us to wrestle with a little bit on this. If this distress is lacking in our lives... If this trouble seems non-existent, then it's quite possible that this world has become too much of our home. 
I know that life is hard for everyone. There's a baseline of hardship that's just true to every human's experience on this planet. And that is true regardless of our creed or our beliefs. But as Christian pilgrims, there are particular troubles and challenges that come from resisting sin and idolatry and the way of the world. And that's what I'm getting onto here in this point. I raced road bikes in high school and there was one race, it was a 26 mile race in Eastern Colorado. And uh, if any of you know Colorado, the mountains kind of end in the center and then Eastern Colorado is more like what you think of when you think of Kansas. And so we were racing kind of out on the open plains with a little bit of undulation. And it was 13 miles on a two-lane highway out, one direction. And then we made a 180-degree turn and came back. And on the way out, there was a fierce headwind. And it was really difficult sledding, really. And then we made the turn, the 180-degree bend. And now we suddenly had a monster tailwind that was just pushing us back to what was the start line, now turned into the finish line. And this is what I want you to, 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 to see. If your Christian life is more like the second half of that bike race, where it just seems like you're moving with the wind. It may be a sign that, in fact, you're too allied with the winds of lies and violence, of materialism and hedonism and relativism that are at our backs in this culture. That's not the path of pilgrimage with to God that we are called to be on. Narrow is the gate and hard is the way says our Lord Jesus, that leads to life. So if the path seems relatively easy with only the standard troubles of kind of common human existence, then it's perhaps likely that we may not be on the right road or we may not be going the right direction on the road. If we're resisting sin and idolatry, we'll feel a pretty strong headwind. There will be struggle and challenge. Early on in my ministry, I, I was leading a retreat and the title of the retreat, which I unveiled in the first session, was A Strenuous Reorientation. And this was actually uh, a phrase from Eugene Peterson from one of his other works. And I'll never forget one of the participants just moaning out loud when I announced the retreat. I think they were kind of ready for just a, you know, a retreat on something uplifting. And I, I said, strenuous reorientation. It was like, really? Do we have to? Isn't it kind of time to rest? Does it always have to be hard? And she was exasperated. And I, I appreciated actually her honesty and her response. I think it was fair and understandable at one level because this road of discipleship, challenging as it may be, is the context of true joy for all of us. It is the place where we find true joy, even in the midst of those struggles and hardships, the strenuous, the strenuous reorientation. And God does invite us to cast our burdens upon him as we walk through this world. And yet, having said that, the way of pilgrimage for us as Christian pilgrims to God is full of conflict and resistance, of saying no again and again to the ways of the world. And swimming against the current does require effort and focus and vigilance and intentionality. Why else does Jesus say, stay awake? It's because if we fall asleep, we'll just begin to float with the current. The Christian life is a movement against the grain, so to speak, of our sinful world. You might remember the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, who says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And it's a call to resistance. In 2 Timothy 2, Tim, uh, Paul compares the Christian life to that of the soldier or the athlete or the farmer. 
Our dwelling in this land of violence and lies will inevitably mean distress in our lives in a very real way as we separate out from this world. And pilgrims are awakened then to the reality of our dwelling. And it's this that causes friction and distress in our lives and a genuine effort to face the headwind. So dwelling, distress, and now third, dependence or response. And I want to say that as I've mentioned effort, that should be understood always whenever I mention that idea, which is a very biblical idea. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's in Hebrews 12 as well. That I'm speaking of a spirit-empowered effort that is, of course, not about something we muster up from within, our own strength and resources, but it's a gift from God that has come down upon us and fills us and empowers us. So it's a, it's a measure of his grace as we step into that effort to walk after him in this world. Yet the psalm, to be fair, isn't actually pointing us to effort here. And this is our third point of dependence. It's, it's moving us actually to say when we're confronted with the distress of our dwelling, of our context, that we are driven to God. We're driven to dependence. And that's the key marker, at least in Psalm 120, of the, the, the life of pilgrimage. It is the mark of depending upon God for deliverance and rescue and salvation. So verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The distresses of this, and the troubles of this world of lies and violence are not overcome in our own strength. Rather, they are faced courageously through a life of prayer, which is a life of dependence upon God. That's what the Psalms always model for us. They're taking life and transforming it into words, poetic words of prayer that are being lifted up to the Father. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's courageously facing his dwelling, which is broken and problematic, by crying out for God's rescue. And in that cry is illustrating the true dependence upon God that is the mark of any pilgrim who's moving toward God. Trouble is the most common context for prayer throughout Scripture and really throughout life. We cry out from our need, from the challenges of wayward children or broken marriages or ethical dilemmas at work or cancer diagnoses or temptations to sin or 14 plus months living in an upended life in the midst of a pandemic. We cry out to God from these places of trouble as, as an expression of our dependence. God is our very present help in trouble. And the, this pilgrim in Psalm 120 knows this and turns to God in prayer. The psalmist moves out of the lies, away from Meshach and Kedar and to the holy city Jerusalem. But to make this journey, this pilgrimage, to escape the trials, he knows that he depends upon God for deliverance and for rescue. And this present crying out in the midst of the trouble and the distress is reinforced and animated for the psalmist by memory. Look at verse 1. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. The psalmist is remembering a past moment of deliverance and letting that past moment of deliverance encourage him and strengthen him to cry out in this present moment of distress. And this is so important, the role of memory on this pilgrimage. Do you think back in your own life to times when you couldn't see a way out, when you were facing a trial or a challenge that it just didn't seem like there was a way through. And as you brought it to the Lord, God rescued you, delivered you, carried you through. We all have those moments in our lives that we can think back on and, and look at. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Look, I remember when I was in distress and I cried out to you and you delivered me. 
And it's remembering those things that fuels and animates and invigorates our cries in the present trouble and challenge. But there's not just the personal remembering. There's also the corporate remembering as well. When we come to faith in Jesus and we're baptized, we are grafted into the people of God. And suddenly the scriptures become our story, not just some book that maybe is hard to understand at times from the past, but the stories told here, in particular, the stories of God's deliverance through Deborah and Gideon, through Moses and Aaron, through David, the king, the shepherd king, and of course, above all, through Jesus, the great king. These stories become our story. And as we face the reality of the the trouble and the trial in the midst of this present world, we remember these stories. We remember God's great deliverance and we lean into that and it infuses our prayers today with fervency and vibrancy as we cry out to God, God, deliver me. And we express our dependence all over again. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Deliver us from this land which is full of lies and violence. A land that speaks peace to its neighbors but has war in its heart. It's this recollection, this memory that strengthens us on the pilgrimage. The end of Romans 8 when Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's Paul doing this very thing of, I remember what he's done in the past. He gave us his son. How will he not also meet us in the present and in the future as we travel on this path that is full of difficulties and distress? But He will be faithful. He will rescue. So this opening psalm in the Songs of Ascent is a turning point. It's a leaving and cleaving of sorts, a repudiation of the values of the neighbors and culture around us of Meshach and Kedar without, and I should say this very clearly, without a repudiation of our neighbors themselves whom God loves, God has sent his son into the world to die for them, to care for them as he has done for us. But it's a repudiation of the the stream of this world, the main current in favor of clinging to the God of truth, a God who's called out to us and called us out of violence and into genuine life. A God who will deliver us again and again, whatever the fiery furnace that may be next for us, he will be faithful. But I want to close with this question. So how do we know that he'll deliver? How do we know that he'll deliver? How do we know that we can genuinely depend upon this God? That's one of the great questions of the Christian life and of Christian discipleship. And the psalm for next week will actually address this question a bit more head on. But I want to say this this week. I want us to look at Jesus. Hebrews 12, which I've referenced a time or two already, actually says this. Look to Jesus as you run this race that you're on, as you go on this pilgrimage. Jesus is the chief pilgrim, the one in whose footsteps we follow, who created a way where there was no way. He knew the dwelling place of this world was full of lies and violence. Just look at his life. Look at the opposition. Look at the conflict. And it caused him great distress. He says, now is my soul troubled in John chapter 12. And you remember the Gethsemane moment when he was so distressed as to what, because of what he would be facing the next day. But he continues to depend. Jesus demonstrates for us this beautiful picture of the life of faith as he depends upon the Father. He spends nights with him in prayer. He continues to cry out to him. And even when he's in the most painful distress of all, hanging on the cross, he quotes from the Psalms. In particular, in Luke 23, he quotes Psalm 31 and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He hands himself over to the Father and says, you will be faithful, you will be my deliverer, I can depend upon you. And then he breathes his last. And what happens next? The Father vindicates him. He delivers him from this trial. Sure, it wasn't, from, it wasn't the kind of deliverance that you or I would want. We would want to be rescued from the particular situation that we're in, that we're facing in our circumstances today. And God does not promise us that kind of deliverance. But what God does clearly promise us from his word is an ultimate deliverance. A deliverance from which there will never be another, in which there will never be another trial that can grab us or reach us or harm us. It is the great deliverance of resurrection. And so when we look to Jesus, the faithful pilgrim, who shows us a life in the midst of distress, a life of resistance, a life of dependence, we see that God will be faithful as he was faithful to his son. He will be faithful to you and to me in whatever the trials that we face as we walk on this pilgrimage up to God himself where we already in some ways, mysteriously and beautifully, are by faith. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. We are there and we are traveling there throughout this troubled and broken world and God will be faithful. We can depend upon him. And the psalmist here at the beginning of the pilgrimage of the Songs of Ascent shows us this cry from distress to the God on whom we can depend. That is the way of faith. And let's learn, we will learn more about this in the weeks ahead as we continue this journey through these psalms. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for these psalms that are short and pithy and comprehensive in so many ways. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as we study them together. Lord, we pray in the midst of distress, in the midst of a world the main current of which is running against you, that you would enable us to depend upon you. I pray that particularly for men and women and children who are here tonight or listening in online, that you would grant us the grace to depend upon you and in our dependence to give glory and honor to you. We love you. Jesus, we thank you for being the exemplary pilgrim. We thank you for the assurance that your resurrection gives us that you will be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.